Welcome to the Digital Ecology Podcast. Here we create a window into the backstory of technology adoption in England's National Health Service. I'm your host, Victoria Betton. James, whilst previously the Chief Digital and Information Officer at Health Education England, but he's got a relatively new job leading the Digital Academy, which we're going to hear about today. And James has got a background in lots of different roles within the NHS, not always a digital flavour, but often. James and I are going to have a chat about all things workforce, digital workforce, clinical workforce with a digital twist, and also about the digital capabilities of the many health and care staff we have in the NHS. So James, welcome. It's lovely to have you with me today. Thank you very much, Victoria. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. (laughs) And James, last time we saw each other, you were on the stage at a Digital Academy dinner doing a little bit of Gangster's Paradise rapping. Do you want to just share what on earth was going on there? (laughs) Wow. What a way to lead. Yeah. So I'm not going to make this a regular thing, I think, but it was a closing celebration graduation event for cohort four of our digital health leadership program. And so every year the students have got an opportunity to try and find some sponsorship and put on a bash basically after the graduation thing. And they asked me to do an after dinner speech. And I was thinking, I've not done an after dinner speech basically since my wedding. There's quite a lot of pressure to be funny. What should I do? I'll play to my strengths (laughs) and rewrite some lyrics to make it pertinent to digital health and cohort four in particular and do it to Coolio's Gangster's Paradise. Yeah, so I did that for a full three and a half minutes. And I'm pleased to say it went down well, Victoria. Would you agree? It did. James, I will report to the audience that you went down an absolute storm. (laughs) (laughs) I should also say I have absolutely no intention of repeating that anytime soon. That was a one-off. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, sadly. Although some of it was captured and shared on Twitter, so I guess the uh, more enthusiastic of our audience could go and track some of it down if they really wanted to. So, James, listen, this is a conversation about the workforce. You work in the digital workforce, and I would love to hear a bit about your journey and what path you've taken to get where you are now, a little bit about your role as it currently stands. And, you know, just thinking about that performance you did, that was quite a risky and brave thing to do. So I'd be interested to maybe just hear a little bit about where risk and bravery has come into that journey as well. So just start wherever you want to and just tell us a little bit about your own career journey and where you're at now. Thank you. I think probably every chief information officer ever did not leave school thinking that's what I want to do with my life. And my career has been a bit of a zigzag through various different things with different ambitions at different times. So I started off, I thought I was going to cure cancer, actually. I thought I was going to be a cancer researcher for my career. I did biochemistry as my first degree. I did a master's in oncology. I did most of a PhD in cancer research. I didn't actually quite finish it. So I'm not Dr. Freed, I'm afraid. But I did try, I did put in the hard yards and learn enough to know that bench science wasn't for me. I then had a bit of a crisis. I didn't know what I was going to do. I applied for 24 different jobs after my PhD and ended up working in the NHS in cancer services, actually, for the modernisation agency for an initiative called the Cancer Services Collaborative. So I did spend about three years working in change management in cancer services, mostly in hospitals in southwest London. I learned a lot about how 
change management is and is not successfully done, actually. In fact, quite a lot of my career is learning how things are not done well (laughs) for various reasons. As an aside, when my daughter was seven, she came home from school one day and said, Daddy, when I get things wrong, my brain grows. And that, I think, is the good side of failure in my career. Wise words. Yeah, I said that once at a conference. It was the most tweeted thing. (laughs) It's my seven-year-old daughter's quote. Anyway, after that, so I saw the archetypal big piles of notes. This would have been around the year 2000. And I remember having a chat with my boss at the time. And I was saying to her, I don't understand why as the NHS, we it was the year 2000, why are we using 1980s technology? Why are we still using huge mounds of paper? I can't find the notes that I need to do the audits that I'm trying to undertake as part of my cancer redesign work. And my boss said, why don't you have a look in the HSJ? I'd not even thought to look in the HSJ actually for jobs. but And I said to her at the time, What I'd really like, I've not got a technology background, but I'd really like to work at the national level. I think I'd like to work in technology. It feels like a great opportunity. So if there was some sort of, I don't know, a national program for IT or something like that, would be great. And she said, look in the HSJ. And sure enough, those five little words were looking at me and I thought, this is fate. Three years later, I'd learned a whole load more about programs that aren't entirely successful. (laughs) and so that's I suppose where I cut my teeth in the technology world and it was very much as my title was best practice process design lead so I was there trying to understand I guess what you might call user research and business analytics actually but from a non-trained perspective I was given a job almost like a project manager and asked to understand what users really needed from the perspective of this part of a contract the output based specification for anyone who remembers the national program variety And so I did that for a while. I learned that I was quite good at translating. So translating between what in particular clinicians needed and what software developers wanted to build. And I found that I had a talent around brokering relationships. So everyone seemed calmer, which was useful. And then I met my future boss and I went to work for him in the health protection agency and became the first head of information strategy for what then became Public Health England, saw the advert for the chief digital information officer in Health Education England and went and worked there. It felt like the natural trajectory for my career. But even when I joined the HPA, I wouldn't have known that I was heading in that direction. And the reason I joined the Health Education England wasn't because I had any particular background in education. It was because they said that their number one value was that they valued their staff. And I thought I knew enough to know that that was important to me. And um, when I joined Health Education England, I got the opportunity to, as well as being a CIO, I started helping out in developing this this idea for what became known as Digital Academy at the time. It was uh, building a digital ready workforce program, learned more about education, learned more about workforce. And it's become my passion, I have to say. I now think it's one of the most impactful areas in health and care today, and I love doing it. So having the opportunity to spend all of my time leading the Digital Academy for Health and Care is like a godsend, really. And for people that don't know it, what is the Digital Academy? Who goes on it and what does it entail? Yeah, so we we articulate our work as being a team that tries to support and educate as many teams as possible in health and care so that they're able to deliver more value tomorrow than they did today. So we don't actually mention the word digital in our sort of oh, reason for being for lots of reasons maybe we'll get onto that and 
Consequently, we've developed a number of education programs that are aimed at various different people. We've got a program aimed at board level leaders delivered through NHS providers that we commission. We've got a few programs aimed at digital data and technology staff, some of them starting out in their journey, some of them aimed more at the senior end. So when you were leading DDAT services in large organizations with significant budgets, and we also support the education of the wider generalist non-DDAT workforce. So we've got a digital skills self-assessment tool, for instance, which not quite yet launched, but we've had 13,000 people test it. And that's aimed at the 3 million people in health and social care. I'd like to get on to talking about that, actually. But before we do, in terms of the course that you run for clinical digital leaders and digital leaders, one of the things that I've always been struck by is... The fact that you had, from the first cohort onward, you had user-centred design as a module. And I can testify, having mentored people on the academy and then being commissioned by people who've been on the academy, people come out of it understanding user-centred design and wanting to incorporate it into their approach, which is great. Tell us more about that bit of it, which is my particular interest. Yeah, no worries. So it all comes back to... And I suppose, actually, this is a post hoc rationalisation. So the Digital Academy, the Digital Health Leadership Programme that used to be called the Digital Academy, used that brand now to incorporate all of our learning programmes. But it used to be that one programme was called the Digital Academy. When it first started, it came about because the WACTA review was published and there was a Secretary of State requirement for something called the Digital Academy. It got us to that very quickly. So we literally got a group of great and the good around a table to suggest ideas for a curriculum. It was taken forward by Imperial Edinburgh and Harvard at the time recent cohorts are led entirely by imperial and but my post hoc rationalization for the inclusion of user-centered design into this is that there's some evidence from hbr forbes and mckinsey that indicates about 70 percent of digital initiatives fail Um, that's a pretty significant number and when we look at the reasons why those things fail, it's because 60% of the reason why digital initiatives fail is because of cultural issues or because of lack of skills. This incorporates solving the wrong problem or solving the right problem badly. One of the biggest deficits, and this is more of an anecdotal thing rather than some something I can point actual data towards, unfortunately, but one of the biggest deficits that we have in public sector technology commissioning really i should say rather than implementation it's the ideas that we choose to take take forward is the lack of skill set around user-centered design the fact that we make decisions on where to spend money and what problems to solve without properly understanding the problem from the perspective of those who we're trying to serve but the people who actually feel it and so what the digital health leadership program does is it's what it doesn't do is create user-centered design professionals it's that's quite an in-depth it's a whole career profession of its own what it does do is it helps those people who are leading digital change and who have got a significant budget to support digital change to recognize the importance of user-centered design which means that they can make sure that before business cases are being proposed the user's perspective is being taken into account so i was thrilled when that was incorporated into the academy i would go further and to say And I'd say that it's the skill set that I think we want to see throughout our entire stack of educational offers much more. So it features very prominently in our digital boards work. It features very prominently in our more generalist workforce educational products as well, because working out whether whether you're solving the right problem at all 
and how to work out whether you're solving the right problem at all is so necessary to making sure you don't waste taxpayers' money. And do you think we have sufficient capability for that sort of transformation piece? So the change piece is the bread and butter of work I do with NHS trusts. And we have QI capability, we have organisational development, we have patient and public involvement. We sometimes have change people within digital teams. We have programme management offices. What are your thoughts? Like what would be like a if there was an NHS trust that had a really good capability for change, what sort of roles would be in it and what are you seeing or not seeing? That's a really good question and it's one that's going to have to be based at least in part on opinion. So I say that because we don't have a service model for digital data and technology. We just don't. You know, we don't know how many of X are needed in a typical NHS trust in order to make sure you've got the perfect delivery of digital data and technology products or services. That said, we've got some models that we can build on. So there's evidence that indicates that where we try and harmonize language around QI, transformation, digital change, even OD, then you get more progress. Where you don't harmonize those sorts of activities, where you've got different teams in the same organization with overlapping responsibilities for change, then you introduce confusion, you introduce conflict, you introduce a lot of heat. There's a lot of time spent in arguing turf. I think in our example organization that you've asked me to describe, the first thing is you've got a common approach to the language of change. Secondly, that across all of those things, there's a recognition that you solve, firstly, you're able to prioritize on the things that are going to add the most value. And value in healthcare is described very clearly by the quadruple aim. There are four reasons why we make change happen in healthcare. The first is around the patient. The second is around the taxpayer. The third is around the workforce. And the fourth is around the public or populations. And as long as you're making progress in at least one of those, ideally all four of those, then you're doing the right thing. Articulating the potential for value gain helps you prioritise what you should do. And if you are unable to prioritise, then, or rather, if everything is a priority, nothing's a priority and you end up spending a significant amount of time progressing not very much. So prioritisation, it should be there. And finally, a good understanding of user-centred design, a language around user-centred design that is shared for the organisation so that every single service is able to articulate what good looks like for the users that they serve, is able to measure it and is able to concentrate all of their efforts on delivering more value tomorrow than they did today through these service-centric user-led teams that are empowered and are multidisciplinary, supported by an expertise in user-centered design. And that's where we don't have the capability that we need or the right capacity. Overall, we estimate, we think, that by 2030, there'll be a deficit of around 17,500 whole-time equivalents across digital data and technology. It's a big gap in terms of capacity. What's like the plan to try and close that gap? Because one of the things I've noticed doing work in the NHS in this field is that career paths aren't necessarily there. The salary's not there compared to other industries to make the NHS an attractive place to work. And often yeah. we're working with quite old technologies, so it's not that appealing to a digital professional to come and work in a sector where the technologies aren't cutting edge. So thinking about those and no doubt other barriers, how do we address some of this? Yeah, that's the $64,000 question or actually the £3 billion question, depending on what you're referring to. But yeah, hopefully we will have in the near future a workforce plan for digital data and technology staff, which will describe what we can do 
at high level to support the NHS and social care being a more attractive employer and how we can create routes to build capacity and capability in the digital data and technology workforce. That will include trying to make movement on salary. I should just point out on salary, so our overall vacancy rate is about 10% in the digital data and technology world in health and care, which is not insignificant, but it is comparable with wider industry. So even though we offer a lower salary, it's not that significantly low, about 10% on average lower, we're still punching in comparison to our attractiveness to the digital data and technology workforce. We don't always make it easy to be recruited. So particularly when you're working in technology jobs and you're expecting to get an interview the same week that you've applied and you're expecting to start the week after, that doesn't happen in health and care. So we can make it easier to recruit. And you mentioned a point which I might summarise as joy at work. So things that people want in their work when they're in digital data and technology roles are recognition and value. So they want to be valued. They want a level of empowerment. So they want to be able to make changes and feel as if that they're responsible for progress. And they want to be able to play with the nice new toys. They want to be able to take a tool set and be able to explore and learn with it. And learning is quite an important part of it as well. So people take jobs in order to develop skill sets that they don't have previously. And I think that our workforce is getting much, much more savvy around choosing a job that helps them prepare for the next step, which might only be in one or two years. People are becoming much more the purveyors of the portfolio career rather than job for life mentality, particularly in the digital data and technology world. So there are absolutely things we can do. Some of these things are easier than others. I would expect to see in relatively short order things like standard sets of roles probably mapped to UK government. I would expect to see career pathways. I would expect to see competency frameworks. We've already seen the first competency frameworks launched for clinical informatics and data professionals, for instance. And I would expect to see learning programs provided by the Digital Academy and others that are aligned to those frameworks so that it becomes easier to know in advance of applying for jobs that you're likely to be able to develop skills in relatively short order. I think purpose is another really important component of this, isn't it? And in the conversations I have with people who've made a choice to work in health and social care, it's because people care about the NHS, everyone's a user of the NHS, or their family members are. And so there's a bit of that very tangible sense of wanting to make a difference. Is that something that you hear as well? Yeah, it's probably the biggest single reason that helps to balance that 10% pay differential. So when we talk to people, when I talk to my own software development teams, what they say to me is, Yes, I know I could have got a job at X paying Y. The reason I am working here is because my uncle, my father, my child relative has used the NHS and had some sort of major experience with them. And I want to give something back. People want to join health and care services and they want to contribute to saving lives. And it's the single biggest boon in terms of our ability to recruit to difficult to recruit roles. But then I guess what you're saying is that we've got to leverage that and actually make it easy for people to join, work and stay in the NHS once they've been motivated to do so. And those are the challenges and the opportunities. And thinking about that 2030, which seems a way off, but I guess isn't really, do you feel like there's sufficient pace and focus? The NHS is so stretched at the moment. Do you feel like, does it feel achievable, those ambitions for 2030? Yeah, that's a really good question. I have to answer this 
knowing that I'm a natural optimist, Victoria. <laughs> but with that perspective, so every single year I work in this domain, I see more and more people recognise this as a significant area of interest. So the budget in the Digital Academy, for instance, has increased year on year. And that trend has been maintained even at times of difficulty and austerity. There, we went from a position where, I think in my second year in this role, so about seven years ago, there was a, so an internal ranking of programmes associated, digital programmes, and we were the only workforce programme, and we were ranked bottom of the list. And two years later, we were second from the top in terms of importance. So it's, I think people are starting to recognise that just simply delivering more technology is not enough. There is absolutely a skills, capability and capacity issue. That in itself, of course, isn't enough to try and solve the problem. But I see other measures that for me are indicators that we're moving in the right direction. So recently we saw the publication of the long-term workforce plan. It's the first workforce plan for the NHS that has ever been published. And it commits both the NHS and the government to a funded plan for more staff. It's got a section in there on digital. It's deliberately not expansive, but it's got a lot of hooks in there. I would anticipate that the next version of the long-term workforce plan would include more detail on the digital data and technology workforce and on digital skills elsewhere. We've seen commitment to a DDAT workforce plan as well. So as I've mentioned, which incorporates all sorts of steps that we can take to try and improve a lot of DDAT staff but also generalist staff in this area and makes commitments around what the centre can do to support them. I think there are lots of reasons to be optimistic. I don't want to be held to a quote now to say, yes, we're going to hit all of our targets <laughs> by 2030. But you heard it here I, first. I should also, <laughs> but I should also point out that prediction that I made at the beginning around the 17,800 roles. It's based on data, but it is a prediction. It's not a promise. We'll replay this podcast in um, whatever, six or seven years, and we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll go through it line by line and see where we got to. Okay, All I right, want to talk on. a little bit. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about the clinical workforce where you have clinical digital leaders. So as well as having chief information officers, you have chief clinical information officers, so you have the clinical leadership. And I did a discovery for one of the London ICBs not that long ago, actually, looking at the career paths and how we could support clinical digital leadership. And one of the things that really struck me, and it's very similar to actually to something you said about your career path, which was there is no career path. You get clinicians who happen to work on a digital project or happen to be a bit techie or they might be a coder in their spare time. You People fall into these sorts of roles and then get hooked and get really interested in them but yeah. I just wonder what we need to be thinking about in terms of how we engage the clinical workforce in digital leadership and how we make sure that as part of the change that you talked about the change process we have really strong clinical leadership because if these projects and programs are going to get led by digital teams I think we can be pretty safely assured they're not going to be successful they need ownership and leadership from clinicians. So just talk to me a little bit about the challenges and the opportunities there. 
Yeah, no worries. So as part of the report we published in 2021, it's on our website. We did some work estimating demand. That's where that 17,000 plus number comes from. The single area of the workforce where we are expecting the largest increase in demand for digital skills is in what we call clinical informatics. And we are anticipating about a 670% increase in clinical informatics skills between 2020 and 2030. It's a significant increase. And that is also a broad set of skills and at the moment we've got one name for it. I'd like to just do a compare and contrast with the clinical workforce and the non-clinical workforce if that's okay to help explain expectation but also need. So the model that we're likely to be adopting in health and care is almost certainly going to be based on the model that we have seen very successfully in UK government. So this is a language around teams being the unit of change. So as an individual, I work as part of a team that delivers a service for a set of users and you can measure value for those users. And important characteristics for that team are two things, really. Firstly, for it to be multidisciplinary and the second for it to be empowered and able to make changes at pace. If you don't have the first, you don't make the right changes. If you don't have the second, you don't make them fast enough in a nutshell. So when you translate that model into healthcare, you've suddenly got this kind of void of clinicians. We don't have a language of clinicians in central government. We've got service owners, we've got product managers, we've got delivery managers, we've got software developers, we've got data professionals or performance analysts. There are 41 roles in the DDAT framework at the moment in government, but no clinicians. So one of the things that my colleagues in NHS England have been thinking about is what does that model, what does a multidisciplinary team look like for a modern day service in health and care. And we start to see gaps, particularly around clinical informatics. Now, I think that the language of those roles works and it could just be, and we don't know the answer to this yet, but it could just be that some of those roles are better filled with clinicians than with non-clinicians. So for many patient facing services, you might be better served having a clinician being a service owner, for instance, or even a product manager we start seeing the concept of clinical safety coming much more to the fore in health and care because health and care is the most dangerous industry in the world. We have more of a need to be safe in health and care delivery of services, including those underpinned by digital technologies, than we do in other branches of government. So we start seeing clinical safety being in there and clinicians taking more of a role. I think we're going to see a differentiation of the concept of a clinical informatician into a number of different roles that clinical staff are more suited to. And that might turn into a career pathway, something linear. I think it's more likely to be a bit more branching. And as part of that, one of those roles is likely to be the chief clinical information officer. Interestingly, we started talking about the CIO and they're actually the rarest of roles in the organisation of the future. We're expecting 90% of roles to have a significant element of digital as part of their job descriptions. That's what the top of review said oh, in 2019. Wow. That's interesting. Okay. Um, not, all, not all of those people will be digital professionals, but they'll have digital skills. Um, another thing that I was going to say in terms of a compare and contrast is clinicians are used to rigorous and well-structured training programmes. So when they are looking to diversify into digital roles and they don't see that, they immediately feel that as a gap, much more than you would if you come from a non-clinical background. There isn't the concept of career pathways either in the non-clinical space. It's just that those of us who are non-clinicians are used to that. We've grown up with that. 
and there's been no particular expectation of it. People do want it when we ask them about it, but it's just there isn't anything. But if you're a doctor, as a doctor, you've just gone through the most rigorous training pathway for any profession anywhere in the world, if you're a doctor in the UK. And then going from that to saying, I want to specialise as a digital doctor, there's, they're worlds apart. And it is just so much more obvious to an individual who's come through a rigorous training route who then wants to diversify. But we will get there. Interesting. So a lot of work to be done, but a lot of opportunity. And I guess when there's a policy focus at government and at NHS England, that's always a lever because we've got such complexity in healthcare, haven't we? We've got so many organisations that make up the NHS. James, just the last sort of section of our conversation, I'd like to talk about the generic workforce within, so the non-digital workforce within health and care, and just thinking about digital skills. So that digital capabilities framework you mentioned, I've used it actually with a couple of trusts in its beta form. And I've had experiences of clinicians saying to me that they're going to leave, they'd rather leave the NHS than have to move from paper to a new electronic patient record, for example. So people are just weary and tired of change and frightened about it. But then I also did a survey recently with a couple of acute trusts I've been working with. And we asked, we used the digital capability scale and asked them where people put themselves in it. And actually, most people said they were pretty digitally confident. They were open to change. And then I pondered, is this more about poor usability? Because that came up massively. So systems that people found hard to use were fragmented, didn't interoperate and so on and so forth. And so I guess what I'm asking you in a roundabout way is, is this a question of digital capabilities, digital literacy, or is this a question of usability, which takes us right back to the user-centred design bit of the conversation? I think the answer is both. I understand the desire to put this all at the feet of, if only we had better, more user-centric information systems in our working lives, you'd have a better experience. You wouldn't need to have that sort of in-depth set of digital literacies. And I understand that even talking about digital literacy puts the emphasis, even the blame onto the user rather than onto those who are commissioning technology. And I can understand why that is problematic. But there are a few reasons why I think it's not quite as simple as saying is it's one or the other. So the first is you have a level of control over the usability of the systems that your organization uses that is not 100%. So for electronic patient records, most organizations would still buy rather than build and the market is limited in terms of what it offers even when you try and build you have to focus your efforts on meeting the needs that are going to give the most value to your organization and you will always have a list longer than you are you will never have systems that are perfect usability particularly in an environment that's particularly complex at least not now is what I mean. Right now, there is no perfectly usable solution. There's some really interesting search that was done by McKinsey that looked at why this might be. It's a brilliant graph, which I will try and describe for listeners. (laughs) So if you could imagine your sort of typical exponential change curve, the thing that starts flat and then shoots off into the roof, describing the changes that we're seeing in the technology world in general. It's the opportunity that technology can provide human beings on this planet and then a curve that's slightly slower doesn't quite hit the ceiling quite as quickly that is the graph that describes commercial 
consumer technology, sorry. So that this is your experience of your mobile phone at home. This is your experience of being able to access app stores that give you access to hundreds of thousands of apps that will enable you to do almost anything. It's the leveraging of 7 billion brains on the planet through the technology platforms that we've got. The third graph is slower again, and that's the experience that you will have in your workplace, any workplace. So a workplace doesn't have 7 billion brains in. NHS England's got 14,000 in, and there's a subset of those 14,000 that are responsible for choosing the technology that you get to use, that I get to use in my workplace. It is necessarily slower. It's not as fast as the opportunity that you've got from consumer technology or even from technology as a whole. And then the fourth curve, the slowest one, is regulation. It's government's ability to keep up with setting rules around safe use of technology. There will always be a slower than feels right. Be a, there's a disjoint between your home life and your work life that's likely to remain for a while. So that said, that's not an excuse not to do user-centered design and not an excuse not to try and buy tools that are most usable. And what we're trying to do is help people make the best with what they have got available. But even making the best decisions that you can around buying or building, you're not going to do everything for everyone. And that's where the digital literacy agenda comes in. There was some brilliant work that was published earlier on this year by a company called Future.now in collaboration with the Lloyds Bank called the UK Essential Digital Skills for Work. It's available on the internet. Have a little look. But they do, they partner with Ipsos Mori every year and they interview, they call up, physically phone up people about 4,000, I think, people in the general workforce. And they ask them some very focused questions about their digital literacy. It's aligned to their own framework, but it's very similar to the one for UK government or the one that we use. The broad categories of skills are very similar. The questions they ask are a lot more specific. And what they've identified is the biggest correlation for digital literacy is not with you, you know what you might traditionally expect it's not with age it's not with socioeconomic bracket it's not even where you live the thing that correlates most tightly to digital literacy is the industry in which you work and healthcare is about middle of the road it's not as poor as construction it's not as advanced as advertising or the tech industry it's somewhere around the middle with education and with wider government and the stats that are presented in that report estimate that 15% of the healthcare workforce do not possess the most essential digital skills for work. So this is, they've got 20 basic digital literacies, and this is fewer than five of those is what they class as essential digital skills for work. And probably about 5% of the healthcare workforce don't have any, none at all. That means they can't use for instance, a computer to learn. It means my ability as the Digital Academy to deliver e-learning, for instance, it just won't reach one in 20 of the healthcare workforce. It means that if you're trying to teach people to use electronic patient record or even to do basic logging in of patients and you don't know how to use a mouse, you're starting from a much lower base. When I talk about digital literacy, I'm talking about the essential skills everyone needs to some degree or other to enable them to do other stuff. I'm not talking about user-centered design. I'm not talking about use of artificial intelligence. I'm not talking about any of that stuff. I'm talking about the basics. And only 37% of the healthcare workforce have got all 20 basic digital literacy skills as measured by Future.now and Lloyd's. So I think there is work to do. 
I think it is necessary. I don't think that's an excuse to buy poor information technology, by the way. And if I may, I don't know, I'm on the board of an NHS trust and, you know, I've got that information in front of me. What should I be doing to try and improve the digital literacy of the people working in my organisation? What are the routes that trusts can take to, to make an impact and improve digital literacy, digital capabilities? The first thing that you should do if you're working on a board is make sure that your board recognises that they have a role in the digital enablement of their organisation that digital now underpins everything that we do, and that even if you're not a digital professional, you have a responsibility as a decision maker on a board to help create the environment that supports more people to make more difference to the value they provide. What that means in a nutshell is creating an organisation that whilst retaining the ability to be safe, is able to make change much more faster than it used to. In terms of very practical things you can do, so we do have a digital skills self-assessment tool. It's going through its final vetting process. Hopefully it'll be released around September, October time. And you should make sure that in time for that launch, you have got a learning and development strategy for your staff. It can choose to incorporate this tool into that. It is free for your use, of course, but other tools are available as well. You should also think about how for those parts of your workforce that are digitally literate, how do you help them develop into the really cutting edge service teams that are both empowered and multidisciplinary that collectively have the right skills that enable them to deliver more value tomorrow than they did today as fast as possible. Love it. Thank you, James. Listen, we're going to round up in a mo. Um, we've covered a lot of subjects and you've given me a whole lot of reading to go away and uh, check up on. A question I always like to ask people at the end of a podcast is, if you could do one small thing to make a big difference in all the challenges and the opportunity we have ahead of us with the digital workforce, what would be that one thing that could make a big difference that you'd like to see or you'd like to be part of or you'd like to take responsibility for? That is a really good one, Victoria. So I think I've got a number of ways of answering this. I could say that I'd love to see people. My pipe dream would be for everyone to recognise humility and curiosity as like super important philosophies with which to try and tackle life. Because without those things, you can't recognise that other people can help solve problems and actually being interested and intrigued about understanding problems better and understanding solutions better is really integral to how we operate in the 21st century. My second answer is I wish that we embedded user-centered design more into how we think and how we operate. So for instance, I really want to work much more closely with both learners and employers in the delivery of the education products that we provide. And then finally, very practically, what I want to do is have a much closer link between the activity that I undertake, and this is this could be true of anyone actually, and the impact that I have. <laughs> it's so hard to measure the impact of learning programs, but I'm really keen on measuring the difference that the Digital Health Leadership Programme has on patients, the taxpayer, the workforce or the public. You know, having that link that explicit link i do this and therefore that many lives are saved or that many pounds are saved i'd love to have that that'd be my perfect thing james i'm going to allow you all three of those and i promise we won't come back and check up on them <laughs> i particularly like your philosophical one at the beginning around orientation because a lot of this 
It's not about technology, is it? It's about our orientation towards improvement, innovation, about how we make the world better and make things better for people working in and accessing health and social care services. So on that note, I'd like to say a massive thank you, James, for joining me today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Digital Ecology podcast. Please like, subscribe and review via the usual channels. My book Towards a Digital Health Ecology is available via Amazon and you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn and Medium at Victoria Betton.